We're in Exodus 27. We're going to do something a little different here. We're going to read verse 9 through 19. We're going to go through that. And then we'll come back to the burnt offering. I hope this makes sense. This is the way my brain works. First, we're going to look at the fence and the courtyard here of the tabernacle. And then later on, we'll see after going through the gate, the first thing you'll see is the altar. And then we'll go back to the altar. So let's read verse 9. It says, You shall also make the court of the tabernacle. For the south side there shall be hangings for the court made of fine woven linen, 100 cubits long for one side. So on one side, the two sides, it was about 150 feet. About 50 yards, half a football field is the length of this courtyard of this tabernacle property, if you would. Verse 10, it's 20 pillars and their 20 sockets will be of bronze. The hooks of those pillars and their bands, those will be of silver. Likewise, along the length of the north side, there shall be hangings 100 cubits long with its 20 pillars and their 20 sockets of bronze and the hooks of the pillars and their bands of silver. Along the width of the court on the west side, there shall be hangings of 50 cubits with their 10 pillars and their 10 sockets. So we got 150 by 150 by 75 feet. It's basically a rectangle. This property where the tabernacle would be there in the rear center of it. Verse 13 through 15, it tells us the width of the court on the east side will be 50 cubits. The hangings on one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. And on one side shall be hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. So now on one part there'd be a fence length about 22 and a half feet. And then in verse 16 it tells us for the gate of the court there shall be a screen 20 cubits long woven of blue and purple and scarlet thread and fine woven linen made by a weaver. It shall have four pillars and four sockets. So there's an opening here on this east side that's 30 feet wide this opening here i don't know how many of you have fences in your homes or what they're made out of right maybe you got an old school one that's still made out of concrete before prices exploded right maybe yours is made out of metal or plastic but this fence is made out of linen right a white linen fence and here there's a gate that's 30 feet wide right i don't know how many of you have gates or rolling gates you have to press the button and then you come in How many of your gate motors are broken, so you're like pushing them out, right? But a 30-foot wide gate, what is the reason for all this? Again, I believe it's because the Lord wants everyone to come into his presence. The Lord desires that no one would perish. That is God's desire, right? You can fit a lot of people through a 30-foot wide gate, but still there's only one gate into the tabernacle. There's only one way, only one door to be able to get into the presence of God. Let's go to John chapter 9. And here Jesus tells us, right? There's only one way into the presence of God, the fold of God. There is only one way into this tabernacle property. There in John chapter 10. Two weeks ago, we looked at a few I am statements dealing with Jesus. Here's another one of the I am statements. And in John chapter 10, we'll begin in verse 7. It says, Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All whoever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, 
He will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches it and the sheep and scatters them. Again, there's only one door. There's only one way into heaven. There's only one way in which man might be saved, right? It's through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. It's through faith in him and in his sacrifice, his finishing work on the cross, and his resurrection. That is the only way into heaven. The only way into the presence of God. It's not through another religion. It's not through your good works. It's not through your church attendance or going on a mission trip or serving. It's only through faith, belief, and trust in Jesus Christ. That's why all of the fence is this white linen, but the gate has blue and purple and scarlet thread. Again, pointing to the royalty of God, the majesty of Jesus, and that scarlet thread, right? The only way we can enter into the presence of God is through the death and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Back in Exodus 27, verse 17 through 18, it tells us all the pillars around the court shall have bands of silver and their hooks shall be of silver, their sockets of bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, the width 50 throughout and the height 5 cubits made of fine woven linen and its sockets of bronze. So again, you have the seven and a half foot tall fence that's 150 feet on the sides and then 50 feet on the short ends of it. And again, what's the purpose of this fence, right? And why white linen, right? Anyone here have a white linen fence around their home, right? Why white linen? There's four main purposes for it. First and foremost, it was a barrier in that it prevented unlawful approach. Again, there's only one way which we can approach the presence of God. It's by going through that door. It's by going through the gate. It's by going through Jesus Christ and a friendship and relationship with him. Can't try to jump over the fence. Can't try to climb under it. Can't pull out a knife and cut the linen and try to breach it through. There's only one way into the presence of God, and that's through Jesus. The second is that it was protection. It was keeping out all the wild animals, right? Be pretty morbid if there'd just be a line of dead animals all around the tabernacle, right? Be kind of morbid, kind of scary, kind of freaky. And now they have this fence to protect the wild animals from going there. Again, remember the mountain, they blocked it off so no one would come near it. We'll see later on all the dead animals are in the middle by the altar, not around the property. The third reason for it is it was a positive line of demarcation between the world and the holy presence of God. Do you ever like, get convicted or bummed out that sometimes we take for granted the death and sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for us? Do you ever get bummed out like, man, I haven't really thought of that today. I haven't really felt the weight of someone else dying taking my place, right? I'm so grateful for times like communion or Resurrection Sunday, Good Friday, when we can be reminded and meditate on the death and sacrifice of Jesus. Because being able to come into the presence of God, it's something that's holy. It's something that's pure. It's something that's awesome. We can't just go in there flippantly or not care about it, not think it's something that's special and important. And all the surrounding tents around the tabernacle, they'd be just regular tents, right? 
mostly black or brown, all these dark and dull colors. And then here in the middle of the wilderness, with the sun beating down on it, you have this property that is completely white, reminding them of the holiness of God, the presence of God, how special it was. And that was in the center of the tribe of Israel. And we in our own lives need to have a line of demarcation between the world and us because we should be in the presence of God. Again, many times we lie to ourselves thinking, hey, we need to be more like the world in order to win them over, right? You got to like trick people into salvation, right? You got to like try to sneak it in there, be a double agent for Jesus, right? Sometimes we think that, but scripturally, we don't see that anywhere. All over scripture, we're told to be holy, to be set apart, to be light in darkness, right? Those two things are polar opposite. If you don't believe me, turn on the lights at four in the morning and see what your eyes tell you, right? Polar opposites. So again, the way we should be living, it should be polar opposite of this world. Set apart for God. We need to have that line of demarcation saying the world, we are in the world, but we are not of it. And then finally, again, one single gate. This one single gate was the only way that you could approach God. Now we start in verse 1. Even before you entered the tabernacle property, you would be able to see through the gate one specific piece of furniture. And it would be the first thing you would see. It would be the first thing you'd have to go through. The first thing you would see even before the tabernacle itself. And it would be the altar of burnt offering. There in Exodus 27, verse 1 and 2, it says, You shall make an altar of acacia wood. Five cubits long and five cubits wide, and the altar shall be a square. And its height will be three cubits, and you shall make its horns on its four corners, and its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. Again, there's many different religions. People have many different ideas of how to be right or how to be right with God. People have different ideas how to hit right nirvana and just become one with the universe, right, or grandmother willow or something like that. But within Christianity, the place, the epicenter of us being able to be right with God, it's the altar. You see it all over Scripture, right? We know it with Abraham. Everywhere he went, he lived in a tent and he put an altar, tent and altar. That word altar is literally the killing place, the killing place. It's not a very happy teaching, but man... The killing place. It's the center of us being able to come into contact with the Lord. And here God had them create a killing place that was seven and a half feet long by seven and a half feet wide by four and a half feet tall. And it was made out of wood and overlaid with bronze. And all over scripture when you see bronze, it's the metal that is associated with judgment. And here at this altar, here at this killing place, judgment would take place for the sins of the people. And for the next 500 years till the time of Solomon when he builds the temple, this one altar would have millions of animals, blood slain and poured out for the sins of the Israelites and anyone else who wanted to get right with God. All of this pointing to the one day when Jesus would go and take our place, being the lamb which takes away the sins of the world. You see, that's the great difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. The great difference between Jesus Christ and what we know throughout the Old Testament. 
The Old Testament is just putting a band-aid on a problem over and over and over and over again. I don't know if you've ever had an old car and you have a crack in the radiator, right? So instead of being able to fork out the money and just redo the radiator, what do you do? Fill it with water everywhere you go, right? Every morning you fill it with water, you got a messed up battery. Do you go and get the new battery? Sometimes you can't, sometimes you can't, right? What do you do? Every day you got to unplug the battery and then set it back up, right? Every single day. And this is what the altar was like for the nation of Israel. It never truly cleansed them of their sins. It didn't even give them the power to stop sinning. It was a band-aid on the problem. And every day when they blew it, they would have to go back. I don't know if you have an old phone, right, and the battery goes bad. So what do you do? You just have it plugged in all the time, right? And that, this is what this is. But now when Jesus dies, he makes a way where now we can be perfect in the sight of God. So now instead of just putting the band-aid on the problem, he makes us brand new. Brand new radiator, brand new cooling system, brand new phone. He makes it completely brand new. This is the power of Christ. Hebrews 13 verse 10, you could just write it down. The author of Hebrews, he says, We have an altar from which those who served the tabernacle have no right to eat from. Again, our killing place is much greater than the killing place here in the Old Testament to the fact that it's so holy. Even the priests that were allowed in the presence of God, they have no right to take part of it. And we have a right in and through Jesus Christ. This is the new covenant. We have a killing place. There has to be a killing place in order to be right with God. The killing place is what grants us fellowship with God. If there's no killing, there's no friendship with God. We need to be reminded of that. Again, this isn't a very popular way of gospel, right? We have different forms of gospel today. They're false gospels, but this is the true one, right? The way into a friendship and relationship with God has to begin at the killing place. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 tells us without shedding of blood, there is no remission, right? What does remission mean? To be released from guilt, be released from penalty, right? Some people, they're dealing with cancer and their cancer goes into remission. They're, in a sense, released from it for a season, And the only way we can be released from our guilt, released from our penalty of sin, another word for that is pardon, right? Every four years, what do we have? A long laundry list of presidential pardons. Some that make sense, some that don't, right? A bunch of rappers getting pardoned. Didn't make much sense, right? But what's the only way we can be pardoned of our sins? In and through Jesus Christ. Through that killing place. He went to that killing place for us. But again, don't get it twisted. Sometimes we think, okay, Jesus, you died so that I could live and that I could do whatever I want and live my happy life and do whatever Zach wants to do. Thanks, Jesus, for your sacrifice, right? No, let's go to Galatians chapter 2, right? Galatians chapter 2, Paul reminds us Jesus didn't just die that we could live happy and do whatever we want. He died so that we could have fellowship with God, but we... As believers still need to revisit that killing place over and over and over again. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, Paul tells us, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ 
died in vain. Again, family, if we want that fellowship and relationship with God, we still go to the killing place. But now what we're putting to death is our flesh. What we're putting to death is our pride. What we're putting to death is our lust. Those are the things that we're putting to death. And we need to put them to death each and every day, right? Last Sunday we read that if we want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, what do we have to do? Pick up your cross daily and crucify yourself. That's the path of discipleship. Jesus didn't just die and now say, ah, go live happily ever after. He says, no, you need to be like me. You need to live life the way that I did. So now our life, it needs to be crucified. Our flesh needs to be put to death. Some of the men, you were part of the men's stake and study. And Ken Grace from Bangor, Maine, he encouraged us that we either die or we kill everything around us, right? Either as a man, as a husband, as a father, I put my own pride to death, my own lusts to death, and my flesh to death, or I'm going to wipe out my wife, I'm going to wipe out my kids, I'm going to wipe out my job. All of the rest of my life is going to be put to death. And look at what we're killing. It's literally kill or be killed. We're killing the enemy. We're not killing the beautiful part of us. We're not killing the part that's going to save us or make us more holy or more pure. We're literally putting to death the one part in us that wants to see us destroyed. The one part in us that wants to put a wedge in between us and our relationship with God. The one part within us that wants to see us raised up as high as we can. And what happens when we're raised up in our own pride? We're going to fall. We're going to be destroyed. But now if we humble ourselves, if we put ourselves to death, then Christ God is the one who's going to raise us up one day. Again, we need to go to the killing place. Galatians chapter 6 verse 14, Paul continues with the same thought process, right? What should we glory in? Where should our pride in? What should we be just bragging about? It's the Lord. Galatians chapter 6 Verse 14, he says, But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Again, family, have we been crucified? Are we boasting about the cross of Jesus Christ or are we boasting about ourselves? You know how often I've gone to church this year? I've, I've gone a lot, right? You know the mission trips I've been on? You know the, you know the places I've taught? You know how many people I've led to Christ, Right? That's not what we should be boasting about. We should be boasting about the work of God. And then what does Paul say? We are crucified to this world. This world has no power on us, has no hold over us. The world is dead to us, right? Some guys, they're into UFC and mixed martial arts and things like that. Is there much of a fight between a guy that's alive and a guy that's dead? Right? No. At that point, that's when the ref calls it off, right? He says, this is an unfair fight. The guy's like asleep on the ground. He can't do anything. That's how we're supposed to treat our flesh. Knocked out, laid out on the canvas, and now living for the Lord. That's the way we should be living. We go back to Exodus 27. So again, we have this altar, seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet by four and a half feet tall. And basically what this is, and if you're into grilling, you'll be able to see it. We basically have a large barbecue. You have a big cajachina. It's basically what you have here, a square-sized cajachina. You could go home and make this if you want, right? We should do one in the backyard here. But uh, Verse 3 through 8, it says, Also you shall make its pans to receive its ashes and its shovels and its basins and its forks and its fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. Again, all of judgment. 
You shall make a grate for it. You have your grill grate there made out of a network of bronze. And the network, you shall make four bronze rings on its corners. You're going to put it under the rim of the altar beneath that the network may be midway up the altar. And you will make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze once again. And the poles shall be put in the rings, and the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar to bear it. You shall make it hollow with boards as it was shown you on the mountain, so shall they make it. So again, some of you men here, you have a stainless steel grill. All your utensils are stainless steel. That's what God is doing here. Saying the whole grill is going to be made out of bronze, and now all of the utensils need to be out of bronze. Because again, the judgment that the people would deserve is now being poured out on these animals. Because the wages of sin is death. Because without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So instead of us having to die, Jesus died for us. Instead of the Israelites having to die, animals would be sacrificed, taking their place. And again, verse 8, Moses, you don't have any input in this. How I showed you on the mountain, this is the way you need to make it. We can come up with any idea you want on how to get to God, how to get right with God. You can do whatever you want, but that's not the way to heaven. The way to heaven is following exactly how God has shown us and revealed to us through the word of God. We jump down to verse 20 and 21. It tells us there, you shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually in the tabernacle of meeting Outside the veil which is in the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. We looked at this two weeks ago, right? This lampstand in the middle of the tabernacle. The only form of light inside the tabernacle was from this lampstand that had seven different uh, branches. It would have little bowls, oil in there, and a wick there. And now God is telling them specifically the only oil that can be used, it needs to be pure and it needs to be pressed. And throughout Scripture, oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. All throughout Scripture. Each time you see oil, it's a picture of the Holy Spirit. That's why they would anoint people with oil, saying that they'd be getting filled with the Holy Spirit. And the same is true for us today. And what does this oil do? It provides light. And Christ, he calls us to be the light of the world, right? Remember that this past couple weeks, right? Jesus, he says, he is the light of the world. But he says, now I'm leaving. And now that I'm leaving, you all, right? Calvary Chapel, Miami, each and every one of us, we are the light of the world. And now what's our fuel source? The Holy Spirit. That's the only way we can truly be a light to this world is if we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And now what kind of oil do we need? Pure. We need to have pure Holy Spirit running through us so that we can be a light for Christ. We can't have pure oil and some flesh in there. Some pure oil and carnality in there, pure oil and sarcasm in there, or pure oil and pride in there. You're not going to be able to shine for the Lord there. It's not going to work, right? Have you ever had wet wood and tried to light a fire with that? It gets frustrating, right? You get some smoldering, some smoke, some different things going on. But is it a pure light burning? So for us, if we want to shine for Christ, we need that pure oil. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, it tells us the God who commanded light 
to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Again, we are called to shine. He's shown his light in our hearts, and now we need to shine for the Lord in front of everyone else. You can write down Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Paul tells us, the Holy Spirit tells us, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Walk in the Spirit. Walk in the way that the pure Holy Spirit is asking you and leading you to walk so that you won't be fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8 through 10. Again, this pure and pressed oil. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8 through 10. It tells us, For you were once darkness, but now... You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Again, we are called to walk in the light. We used to all be... In the darkness. We were a part of the darkness. And now Christ says, if you're saved, if you're filled, you're a son or daughter of the light. You need to walk in the light. And a part of walking in the light is what? Finding out what's acceptable to God and having no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead to expose them to say, Zach, this right here, this is unfruitful. This is my flesh. This is my pride. We need to expose those things, not take care of them, not, you know, pobrecito, keep it in the corner there just in case. Got to put it to death. And next chapter, we'll see next week how there at the altar, anything that was left of the flesh of the animals or the skins of the animals, they would have another sacrifice, but it would be taken outside the camp and they would burn it to a crisp. What is the picture of that? How are we supposed to treat our flesh? Burn it to a crisp. Don't allow any of your flesh to stay there. Your pride, I'm just going to keep a little bit of my pride, right? Your lust, ah, just a little bit of lust here, right? My flesh, my arrogance, let me just keep a little bit. No, got to burn that to a crisp because we are now sons and daughters of the light. We need to shine in this world. That's our mission to be the salt of this earth and the light of the world. The second part of that oil was what? Pressed oil. I don't know if you've ever been through one of those seasons, right, where you just feel like you're just being squeezed and you're just saying, Lord, what's going on? Lord, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this season. Lord, I feel like I'm, I'm dying here. I'm not going to make it through, Lord. I'm exhausted. God, what's happening? I encourage you in those seasons of being pressed, lean into the Lord, and those will turn out to be some of the sweetest seasons of your life, some of the most fruitful seasons of your life. Now, again, we shouldn't be masochists. We shouldn't just say, Lord, yes, bring me seasons of pressing, right? That's not the case at all. I remember I was talking to one of the guys, and he used to pray, Lord, bring us different situations so that we can grow and learn more about you. I was like, no, man, God, stop praying prayers like that. He said, Lord, fill us with your spirit and just show us. Reveal us things through your Holy Spirit, right? We don't want to go through those seasons of pressing, but when we do, there's so much growth there, right? Some of our own friends and family members, they've gone through cancer or difficulty, sickness, those seasons of pressing. And at the end of it, they say, I wouldn't change anything. Because now their walk and relationship with God, that oil is now purer than ever. 
So again, the same for us when we're going through those seasons. Don't turn to the flesh, but instead turn to the Lord, and he's going to use that season for his glory and to refine that Holy Spirit within you. I was listening to a podcast with a Navy SEAL, and he was talking about the atrocities of war and how disgusting and terrible it is and how you see the worst and worst of humanity. But he says, that was the best part of my life. That's where I learned the most. That's where I grew the most. That's where I saw the worst of this world, but I also saw the very best that this world had to offer. The guy interviewing him said then, so what do you want for your son? You want peace or do you want war for him? And he goes, of course I want peace for him, but I know what happens in the war. That's where you grow. That's where you become grateful. That's where you get closer and closer to the most important things in life. So again, maybe right now you're in that season of pressing. Turn to the Lord. Encourage yourself in the Lord, right? All the psalms we have, we have some pretty great psalms. We sung one of them here. You don't sing that great song when everything is perfect and pure, right? You don't say the Lord is with us even in the lazy river with the pina coladas, right? And nachos, right? You don't say that. You say, Lord, you are with us even in the fire. Even if the world is breaking, even if mountains are being thrown into the sea, Lord, you are still with us. That's that season of pressing. So again, I encourage you, if you're in that season, cry out to God, get closer and closer to him. Exodus 28 Got to run through this now. Again, for all you fashion designers out here, this is the chapter for you. Uh, Exodus chapter 28, verse 1 through 4, it tells us, Now take Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as priest. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. So you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, right? That they may make Aaron's garments and consecrate him that he may minister to me as priest. And these are the garments which you shall make, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a skillfully woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. So they shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons that he may minister to me as priest. Couple things here, right? Who's the one that's called to be the priest? It's Aaron and his sons. Now, some of you guys are Bible scholars, right? What's Aaron doing literally the moments when God is talking to Moses on the mountain, right? He's totally blowing it. Aaron's at the bottom of the mountain, and the people of Israel are saying, Moses, he must be dead up on the mountain, right? We need a new God. We need someone to worship. And Aaron says, okay, uh, give me all your gold and I'll make a golden calf. And you guys can worship the golden calf. The golden calf is the one who saved us and freed us from Egypt. He's literally saying this the moment when God is saying, okay, I'm going to set apart Aaron and his sons for you to be priests. Did Aaron deserve to be the priest of God? Do we deserve to be the priests of God? No, but we are called to be. Right? We read it, First Peter chapter 2. We are to be that holy priesthood, and we should be the ones offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But we are to take that not with arrogance, not with pride, but with humility, realizing, Lord, I don't deserve this. But Lord, I want to do my best to live right before you. Even Aaron's sons, in a couple of chapters, they're going to be put to death because they're offering up strange sacrifices and strange fire. The grace of God, the mercy of God. Then in verse 3, we see really one of the first gifts of the Holy Spirit that no one really prays for, right? Gifted artisans who I'm filled with the spirit of wisdom, right? 
the gift of sewing, right? I don't know if any of you ladies, gentlemen, have the gift of sewing or crocheting, right? It's a spiritual gift, apparently, right? We need more and more people like that willing to work with their hands to bring honor and glory for the Lord. Then he gives us the list of these garments, and we're going to see that they're woven out of linen, out of blues and purples, gold, beautiful colors. In a time period when most people's clothes were pretty dark and dingy, right? Why was Joseph's coat so special and important? Because it had colors, right? That's about it. That was the reason why it was so special, so important. But most people's clothes were pretty dark, dingy, not that important. And clothing was something that was seen for the very rich and wealthy, right? Most people in biblical times only had one set of clothes. Imagine that, right? Some of the guys are like, I'm down for that. Some of the ladies, not so much, right? One set of clothes, one tunic. That's why when you have the Samaritan who saved and helped the Jewish man on the road, what was it that the two thieves took from him? They beat him up and they took his clothes. It was something that they could sell and make money off of. So now with people that would have clothing that would be special, clothing that would not be all that luxurious or beautiful, what does God have for the priests? Beautiful garments. To again point to the Lord, point to the beauty of heaven. Adam Clark, he has this funny commentary on this, talking about priests today, right? People today, he says, Is then the dismal black now worn by almost all kinds of priests and ministers for glory and for beauty? Is it a symbol of anything that is good, glorious, or excellent? How unbecoming the glad tidings announced by Christian ministers is a color symbolic of nothing but mourning and woe and sin and desolation and death, right? Today, people within religiosity, what do they dress in? All black, right? They look like they're mourning almost. What does that mean for us? May we not be Christian Eeyores, right? May each and every one of us not be Christian Eeyores, right? Hey, Zach, how's your day going? I'm blessed, brother, right? (laughs) How you doing? Better than I deserve, right? No, man. We should have joy, We should have gladness, the joy of the Lord. That's our strength. And we should have that pouring in and out of us. We should be excited that God loves us even though we don't deserve it. That we were adopted into this family of God even though we don't deserve it. That should excite us, right? Then we're going to see in a moment here the same phrase repeated over and over and over again. Repeated three times. The whole point of being a priest was that he may minister to me. That he may minister to me. That he may minister to me. Ministering to God is the number one priority of a priest. And as we are the kingdom of priests, going to God first and foremost and seeking to bless him should be our chief desire. Again, we all are that kingdom of priests. Our job is to first and foremost minister unto the Lord. Are we doing that? Are we doing our job? Are we fulfilling our role that God has given to us? Our first role, it's not ministering to the people around us. Our first job is to make sure that we're ministering unto the Lord. And then after that, we can minister and care for the people around us. Verse 5 through 8, first it's the ephod. It says, they shall take gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine linen, and they shall make an ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen artistically worked. They shall have two shoulder straps joined at its two edges, 
and so it shall be joined together. And the intricately woven band of the ephod, which is on it, shall be of the same workmanship made of blue, purple, and gold, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. Here we see that this ephod, it was to be on the shoulders of the priest. Shoulders, it's a sign of tough work, right? Being able to carry a heavy burden, being able to do hard work and hard labor. And the point of the priest being there, first and foremost, was to minister to God. And now the second point of the priest being there was to work for the people of God. To be able to carry their load, to be able to carry their burdens. That's the point of the priest. Again, we as the kingdom of priests should be carrying, bearing one another's burdens, right? It's biblical. It's in scripture. And now as we look at our role, caring for one another, we look to our high priest and now what he's capable of, right? It's sort of like an unwritten dad rule, right? You're, you come back from the grocery store, your wife comes back from the grocery store, and it's just an unwritten dad rule. Got to bring all the groceries and as little trips as possible, right? It's just part of being a dad, right? It's just part of the job. So you young men start working on that, practicing that, right? But sometimes my sons, they want to help. Sometimes even little Ella, she wants to help. But I already got all the bags of groceries in my arms, right? All like 20 of them. I got it all, right? But they want to help. But they can't carry all that I'm carrying. So I give them like a pint of strawberries. Give them a bag of popcorn. I give them like the bread, right? Don't smush it. Don't break it, right? But I'm the one carrying all the load. And even we, as we're priests, we look to our high priest that can carry more than we can. Right? He tells us we have a perfect high priest. Let's see what he has to say about this. Let's go to Matthew chapter 11. In Matthew chapter 11, he has a lot to say on burdens, on carrying a load, and the way we should be living. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. Again, here this is Jesus, our high priest. And he tells us, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Again, family, maybe you're in a season right now where you are trying to carry more than you should be. You're at a point where God, where Jesus is saying, lay your burdens at my feet. Allow me to carry it. And now said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Right? So often people in this day and age, they have no peace. They have no rest. We're living in the safest time ever to be alive. And yet people have no peace and no rest. Because people are carrying burdens that they have no business carrying. But it takes humility, right? Have you been ever trying to move with someone? They're like, no, no, I got it, I got it, right? And bad things happen. It takes humility to put it down and say, hey, I need some help with this. That's what we need to do. We need to come to Christ and say, Lord, this is too heavy of a burden for me to carry. Instead, I'll take the yoke from you, right? And I'll learn from you. I'll stick with you, Jesus. And wherever you go, that's where I'll go. But again, we are to carry the burdens for one another. And if you're interested in ministry, interested in being a pastor, again, what is the work? Is it to puff up myself, to make myself more famous? No. The work of a pastor, the work of a priest is to minister to the Lord and carry the burdens of the people. To care about them, to love them, right? We looked at it earlier how Jesus said he is the good shepherd because he lays his life for the sheep. That's the point of the ministry. 
I sadly sometimes you hear pastors say, oh, I love the ministry, I just don't like the people, right? And it makes no sense. Imagine hearing from your kid's teacher, I love being a teacher, I just can't stand kids. What? We need a new teacher principal, right? I need to move my kids somewhere else, right? And again, we as believers, we should never say, oh, I love going to church, it's just the people I can't stand, right? Ah, if I could just go to church, just me and the pastor alone, that'd be great, right? No. This is the point of church, that we'd be with one another, that we would fellowship with one another, and that we would sharpen one another. Back to Exodus 28. Run through this last chunk of scripture, verse 9 through 14. Then you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on one stone, six of the names on the other stone, in the order of their birth. We know that there's 12 tribes of Israel, 12 sons of Israel, right? Verse 11, with the work of an engraver in stone, like the engravings of a signet, you shall engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall set them in settings of gold, and you shall put the two stones on the shoulders of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. So Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders as a memorial. You shall also make settings of gold, and you shall make two chains of pure gold like braided cords and fasten the braided chains to the settings. Again, carrying the people on his shoulders doing the work, bringing them to the presence of God. This is the work of the priest. Verse 15, we begin to now look at this breastplate. They have this vest over them, the ephod. Then they have this breastplate in the middle of their chest. It says, you shall make the breastplate of judgment, artistically woven according to the workmanship of the ephod. You shall make it gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen. You shall make it. It shall be doubled into a square, A span shall be its length and a span its width, and you shall put settings of stone in it, four rows of stone. First row, it's going to have sardis, topaz, and an emerald. This shall be the first row. The second row shall be turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond. The third row, a jacknith, an agite, and an amethyst. The fourth row, a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper, and they shall be set in gold settings. And the stones shall have the names of the sons of Israel, 12 according to their names, like the engraving of a signet, each one with its own name, and they shall be according to the 12 tribes. So again, the work of a priest, the work of a pastor, our work, first and foremost, minister to God. Second, bear people's burdens on our shoulders. Third, have the people on our heart. That's where this breastplate was. It was right on their chest, right on their heart. And now the work of a priest is to love and care for the people. It's not just to do work for them and say, okay, get out of the way. I did what you wanted me to do. Now I'm out, right? Get out of my way. Let me do this funeral. Let me get out, right? That's not the work of a priest. I'm here. Let me marry you and let me just get out of here, right? I got things to do. That's not the, that's not the work of a priest. We need to have a love and care for one another. And here they would have the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel, and it was known as the breastplate of judgment. Again, that we would care about one another, the sins that people are in. Not that we'd blab it and gossip, but that we would be broken thinking of the judgment that's going to happen if they don't get right with God. That's what we should be bearing in our heart. Not gossip, trying to cut other people down. We'd be bearing, man, I can't believe they're doing this unto the Lord. It's going to hurt them. It's going to break them. That's what we should be carrying. Verse 22, now he talks about basically how you fasten the ephod. 
to the chest. It says, you shall make chains for the breastplate at the end, like braided cords of pure gold. You shall make two rings of gold for the breastplate. Put two rings on the two ends of the breastplate. Then you shall put the two braided chains of gold in the two rings, which are at the ends of the breastplate. The other two ends and the two braided chains you shall fasten to the settings and put them on shoulder straps of the ephod in the front, right? God is giving so much detail. He's telling him how to put the buttons, how to put the zippers, where to put the hooks so that the ephod would not fall. And now again, what's our excuse for not coming into the presence of God? Oh, Lord, it's so hard to get to church. Oh, Sunday's my only day to wake up. Do you want to go back to Old Testament times, right? Got to go through all this work to have someone else go for you into the presence of God. Verse 26, you shall make two rings of gold, put them on the two ends of the breastplate, on the edge of it, which is on the inner side of the ephod, and the two other rings of gold you shall make and put them on the two shoulder straps underneath the ephod towards its front, right at the seam above the intricately woven band of the ephod. They shall bind the breastplate by means of its rings to the rings of the ephod using a blue cord so that it is above the intricately woven band of the ephod and so that the breastplate does not come loose from the ephod. Verse 29 and 30, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart. And when he goes into the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually, and you shall put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim. And they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. So Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. And we should be brokenhearted thinking of God's judgment on people because they don't want to humble themselves and come to Christ. Here we see these two words, right? The Urim and the Thummim, right? Great words if you're playing hangman or different things like that, right? What do they mean? We really don't know what they mean. Most Bible scholars come to one conclusion, right? It talked about how the breastplate was folded over. The gold is folded over. You have your first golden fanny pack ever, right? And now in the fanny pack, you would have the urim and the thummim. And what they believe is the priest would come to God, again, the breastplate of judgment, and now they would be asking God a yes or no question. They would pray, and then they pull out a stone, Depending which stone they pull out would be a yes or no from God. This is what most Bible scholars believe. Now, don't go home. Don't get two rocks. Don't dip them and say yes or no. And God, is this the one, right? You're shaking your little eight ball. Say, Lord, is this the one, right? We, we don't have to do that anymore, right? God, he's given us much more than yes or no. He's given us a full book filled with his word for us. He's given us his Holy Spirit that we can ask, Lord, you're the author of the book. Reveal to me what you're trying to speak to me. He's given us friends and family members within the body of Christ to help us and lead us to go in Scripture and to live the right way. So again, don't go home and create your own little way. Hey, God did this because I pulled out the yellow rock and it has to be God, right? Don't do that. Verse 31 through 35. You shall make the robe of the ephod all of blue. There shall be an opening for his head in the middle of it. It shall have a woven binding all around its opening, like the opening in a coat of mail, so that it does not tear. Upon its hem, you shall take pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet all around its hem, and bells of gold between them all. A golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate upon the hem of the robe all around. And it shall be upon Aaron when he ministers, and its sound will be heard where, when he goes into the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, that he may not die. So again, God 
designing the robes of the priests, they were wearing bell bottoms. He doesn't like that one either, right? So they have pomegranate and bell, pomegranate and bell, pomegranate and bell at the bottom of their robe. Everywhere they would go, they'd be jingling, right? I don't know any new parents here. If somebody buys you those shoes for your kids that have a little squeaker in them, get rid of them, right? As you want to hear it, squeak, 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 everywhere they go, right? And basically, that's what would happen with Aaron. Everywhere he would go, everywhere the high priest would go, you'd have the little bells jingling all the way, thinking Santa's coming down the chimney or something like that, right? What's the reason for this? Again, once a year, we looked at it, during the Day of Atonement, the high priest, he would go into the Holy of Holies. First and foremost, he would get atonement for his own sins, putting blood of a sacrifice for himself there on the Ark of the Covenant, on the judgment seat, and then the blood of a sacrifice for the sins of the nation, atoning for their sins. But now if the high priest was not right with God, and you heard jingle, jingle, thud, then you knew that the high priest was not right with God. And now later on what they would do is they'd have a rope around his ankle and they'd pull him out. I guess they learned that afterwards, right? The first person that dropped, they said, you go get him. I'm not going in there, right? You go first, right? So they learned this later on. Again, talk about the dangers of the work environment here. And this is what it was like to come into the presence of God before Jesus Christ. Now he tells us in Hebrews, right, come boldly to the throne of grace that you may find help in time of need. Now we just come to him and cry out, Abba, Daddy, I need help. Lord, help me. That's the way we should now be coming to the Lord. Verse 36, you shall also make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holiness to the Lord. And you shall put it on a blue cord that it may be on a turban. It shall be on the front of the turban. So it shall be on Aaron's forehead that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel hollow in all their holy gifts. And it shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. A couple years back, don't know how many of you are still familiar with eBay, right? eBay used to be crazy popular. And in eBay's heyday, there was a guy that sold the rights to his forehead. He said, anybody that wants to bid, they can get the rights to his forehead and tattoo whatever they want to advertise on the guy's forehead. I think it was like $37,000 or something like that. Whatever business, right? Calvary Chapel, Miami, they're on the guy's forehead, right? Whatever it may be. And this is basically what the Lord is doing here for Aaron. In their turban, you can think almost a dog tag. And in their turban, in the middle, they'd have a golden dog tag. And it would say, holiness to the Lord. And family, as a kingdom of priests, this is the way we should be living. Everything we think, everything we process, everything we bring into our minds should go through that filter. I'm supposed to be set apart to Christ. I'm supposed to be different. I am set apart unto the Lord. It's not that I'm just set apart away from this world and I go on a commune in the middle of nowhere. No, I am set apart unto the Lord. Now anything that I'm watching, anything I'm bringing into my mind, is this being set apart. At every selfie you take, you have there, set apart to the Lord. Every picture you put on the gram, right, set apart to the Lord, right on your forehead, right? That everything we would do, everything we take into our minds, we would think, Lord, is this helping me be set apart unto you? Again, that's the life that we should be living. Don't go home. Don't get a tattoo on your forehead that says holiness to the Lord. That's not this church. Those are other churches. But um, again, that we would have that mindset. Everything that comes into our mind, everything that we listen to, everything that we allow to take room in our minds and hearts, is it helping us be more and more set 
apart for the Lord. Every single day he woke up and put on that hat. It's time to be set apart. Holiness to the Lord. Verse 39, you shall skillfully weave the tunic of fine linen thread. You shall make the turban of fine linen. You shall make the sash of woven work. For Aaron's sons, you shall make tunics and you shall make sashes for them. And you shall make hats for them for glory and for beauty. So you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him. You shall anoint them, consecrate them, and sanctify them that they may minister to me as priests. Here in verse 41, we get a great list for us to be conscious of before we can really minister unto the Lord and minister to people around us. Again, First Peter 2, we are a nation of priests. The first thing is, are we anointed with the Holy Spirit? Are we filled with the Holy Spirit? Is it that pure oil so that we can shine in this world? The first thing was to anoint them. The next thing was to consecrate them. Are we set apart? Are we holy for the Lord or do we look just like this world? Are we acting like them, talking like them, have all the same hobbies as them, live just like them? You're never going to win them over like that. We're not double agents trying to cheat people or lie to people and getting them into heaven, trick them into heaven. It doesn't work that way. Finally, sanctify them. We know that God's word is the picture of water or cleansing throughout scripture. We know that Psalm 119 tells us the only way a young man can cleanse his way, right, is by taking in God's word over and over and over again. Are we taking in God's word? Are we allowing his word to cleanse us and sanctify us over and over and over again each and every day? When we do these three things, right, filled with the Holy Spirit, set apart to the Lord, taking in the word of God, then we can minister to him. We can minister to him and to the people around us. Verse 42 and 43, And you shall make for them linen trousers to cover their nakedness. They shall reach from the waist to the thighs. Right? See, tidy whities are not godly here. They should go from the waist all the way down to the thighs. Right? Verse 43, They shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they come into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, that they do not incur iniquity and die. Very serious offense here. It shall be a statute forever to him and to his descendants after him. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first altar that was built. God said, don't put any stairs on it that their nakedness be uncovered, right? That the wind blow up their skirt and guys see things that shouldn't be seen. The priest would die there on the spot. So now God has, right, this is Old Covenant, Old Testament, right? They'd have this underwear that go from their waist all the way down to their thigh. And this was just a picture of modesty, Again, we as believers, as a kingdom of priests, we should be living in modesty. There's no holy midriff here, right? It goes from the waist down to the thighs. There's nothing popping out in the back here. It goes from the waist down to the thighs. And our life should be a life of modesty, a life of humility, a life of looking different from this world. And again, it's a serious offense if you have any skin popping out or showing during the sacrifice or during your worship unto the Lord. That's what happened here for these priests. But again, glory be to God, we're alive during the new covenant, right? Now our only excuse for not being in the presence of God is not location. It's not enough money to buy the doves or to buy the cattle. It's that man in the mirror. The only person keeping me from getting into the presence of God is my own pride. It's me not allowing myself to humble myself, pick up my cross daily, and follow him. 